Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, recorded August 5th, 2022, titled, Apologist Answers Atheists' Three Objections to Christianity. Yes, sir, what's your name? Apologia. Remember? We debated a few months ago about your movie book. You're very polite, but I debated an atheist who was a little bit more direct. Yes, that was me. Okay, let me stop right there because that's not the case. It was, with Justin Brierley. You did not want to date him. He's not really my type. Look, I only like you as a friend. First, God friend zones me, and then Frank does. You don't have to worship God. You can do whatever you want. Cool. I will. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Today, it's one of Dr. Frank Turek's infamous college Q&A clips. Hello, my name is Carter. Hello, Carter. Hey, Carter. And I'd very much like to begin by addressing your offensive moral law argument that without God as an objective moral standard, we atheists, those who do not have the influence of theism, would be Hitler-esque immoral beings. Okay, let me stop right there. Yeah, let me also stop you right there, Carter. I've been listening to Turek for a long time now, and I've never heard him use that language. Hyperbole has its place, but it's not a good faith starting point for a productive conversation to try to put words into the mouth of your interlocutor. This is one reason I like to respond to clips instead of paraphrasing Christians. There's no point in arguing against something the other person isn't saying. Because that's not the case. I never said that atheists can't be moral. I never said atheists don't know morality. In fact, atheists know morality just like everybody else. We know morality because it's written on our hearts. We know morality because if the definition of morality involves reducing suffering or increasing flourishing, then we understand what actions correlate to those goals. No heart writing required. What I'm saying is, is that atheists can't justify morality. That's the point. In fact, I had to say this several times to Christopher Hitchens. Oh, that's right. Frank Turek debated the late Christopher Hitchens at least twice. Where does evil come from? Religion. <laughs> that would have had a little more pull back in 2013, so it makes sense that he'd name drop from stage. Christopher, I'm not saying you're a bad guy. Christopher, I'm not saying you don't know morality. Christopher may say that I'm saying he can't be moral. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying atheists can't be moral. I'm not saying atheists don't know morality. They know morality just like anybody else. In fact, I like Christopher. I thought he was a good guy. What I'm saying is you can't justify why not murder innocent people to get what you want. That's the point. It's a point about ontology, not a point about epistemology. Ah, uh, yes. It's ontology, not epistemology. Frank said this to me in our conversation on Unbelievable. Right. I'm, I'm not talking about the epistemological issue, Paul. I'm talking about the ontological issue. So I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about epistemology. How do we know right and wrong? I'm talking about... What is the ultimate standard of goodness? If I had a dollar for every time I've heard this from apologists, I might be able to retire. And that's confusing moral epistemology with moral ontology. Makes the familiar confusion between moral epistemology and moral ontology. There's a difference between moral epistemology, how we come to know moral truths, 
and moral ontology. Specifically, moral ontology, the moral epistemology. You, you don't seem to understand the difference between moral epistemology and moral ontology. It's not a point about how you know the moral law. It's a point about why does the moral law exist? Before I would need to explain why a moral law exists, you'd first have to convince me that a moral law exists, at least in the sense that Frank means. Looking back on his conversations with Hitchens then, and me just a few weeks ago, what case does Frank put forth for a moral law? I think people from the dawn of time have known right from wrong. It's called the moral law written on their hearts, even from a biblical perspective, because before there was any Bible, uh, God wipes out the entire generation of Noah. They didn't have a Bible, so you don't need the Bible to know right from wrong. There's a standard beyond everybody that defines what is right. That standard is God's very nature. It has to do with the ontological category known as morality. Where does morality come from? Does it come from the benzene molecule, the carbon molecule, the oxygen molecule? In your worldview, where does it come from? You know that the Jedi are the good guys and say the Sith are the bad guys or Darth Vader and his crew are the bad guys because you already have a moral law written on your heart. We have a moral law written on our hearts. That's an effect. So we're reasoning back to a moral law giver. Ah, uh, yes. He puts forth no case at all, but merely asserts that we have something written on our hearts, which he elsewhere equates to general intuition. But we all intuitively know that certain things really are objectively wrong. It's not just my opinion that torturing babies for fun is wrong. It really is wrong. I don't think that we need to have, go back to some kind of ontological effect in the same way Frank does. I feel like that the natural world in and of itself, so let's just stick with morality and the good versus evil, and the fact that we are a social species and our survival advantage is that we are social and the more we work together, and we do need to have our own individual uh, selfishness in order to stay alive, to, to reproduce, but the, the, we try to curtail that, again, for the survivability of the race, and if we don't survive, um, then our, our species doesn't continue. That is enough of a reason to say, hey, you know what? We're going to look at someone who's strong and altruistic. That is going to be a hero because that meets both of our survival needs. They are strong. They might be a good provider. They can help protect us. But also that person, you know, gives himself, not necessarily gives their life, although they might. Uh, Frank gives some good examples in the book of, of people in real life who've given their lives. Um, you know, that doesn't need a grounding beyond the survivability. So you're saying that morality ultimately is subjective then? Well, morality is, that bears it out. I think every single individual you talk to will think that certain things are moral and certain things aren't. You don't have a universal consensus on these things. But the thing is, we are biologically wired to tend to appreciate altruism and tend to appreciate, um, you know, the, the tribe. So because those are, the, again, we're kind of going in circles a bit on that, Justin, but mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like that's an adequate grounding. Okay, so then essentially you're, we're back to the epistemological question then. How do we know morality? And you're saying it's hardwired into our system. Well, that would also mean then that every thought we have is hardwired into our system. So why should we believe anything's true? The theist says, when I tell you what to do, Christopher... I have God on my side. Uh, and, various other things. You, and, and since God doesn't ever directly appear and say, do it this way, it's done for him, and this is really convenient, by human representatives who claim to act in his name. So that's why I think your standard of proof should be a great deal higher. 
I may return to address this, or the gentleman behind me may address it, but... Oh, Carter, why did you just back away from the moral question with Frank? Oh, well, if my experience with Frank is representative, he would have just quickly changed the subject himself. I guess what I'm trying to get at is... If if our if our moral uh, preferences come from evolution, then so do our thoughts come from evolution, including the thought that atheism is true. And so there's there's no way for you and I to have a real debate as to whether or not Christianity or atheism is true, because if we're both governed by the laws of physics, we're not we're not even uttering truth claims. And off he went from morality to truth. I'd really like to address your design argument. Okay. As I understood, you've argued that a painting or a creation, to use the term painting, implies a painter, or a design implies a designer. But I must ask, who designed God? And if no one designed God, if God is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, and he existed eternally in an uncaused fashion, then why can't nature exist in the exact same way, in an eternal, uncaused, spaceless, timeless, immaterial fashion? Why can't our uncaused origins be as marvelous and precise as God, but be natural causes? Excellent question, Carter. I agree. Excellent question. I like to say it this way. Theists present God as a brute fact, and I present matter and energy as brute facts. What makes your brute fact better than my brute fact? At least I can demonstrate that mine exists. That's a very good question. You're right that we have two options here. Either the universe is the uncaused first cause, or something beyond the universe is the uncaused first cause. Yep, brute fact versus brute fact. A fact that just is and has no further explanation. Uncaused. The problem is, is that all the evidence points to the fact that the universe is not the uncaused first cause. And now, as Frank and other apologists are wont to do, they will pretend that universe in the sense of our particular instantiation of space-time which began to exist at the Big Bang, is the same as the cosmos, or all that exists materially, including whatever is outside our particular universe. In the first sense, it has a cause. In the second sense, we have no idea. And I didn't have time to go through that evidence tonight. That was part one. But I'll, I'll give it to you very briefly in an acronym, SURGE, S-U-R-G-E. S stands for the second law of thermodynamics which says that the universe is running down. Well, if it's running down, somebody must have wound it up. We'd have no energy left right now if the universe was eternal. The second law of thermodynamics doesn't refer to energy in general, but rather the amount of energy available to be used. It also applies only to closed systems. So entropy in our universe says nothing about energy available outside of our universe. Finally, the formula for thermodynamic entropy is most simply expressed as delta Q over T. If Frank doesn't have time for evidence, then I don't have time to explain delta Q. But the thing to note is that over T means over time. Without time, there is no entropy. Neither Frank nor I can tell you what a state of non-time looks like. But I can tell you that entropy isn't a pre-Big Bang factor without it. The U stands for the fact that the universe is expanding. Our particular instantiation of space-time is expanding. Again, this says nothing about the cosmos. Edwin Hubble detected that back in 1929 and shows that everything came from a single point, a point actually of infinite density, the singularity, which is actually nothing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Leaving aside current cosmological debates about whether a singularity is the best model, a singularity of infinite density isn't nothing. 
It's a singularity. A singularity is something. And what is nothing, Frank? What is nothing? Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said, nothing is what rocks dream about. Nothing. There was no thing. Sorry, Frank. A singularity isn't what rocks dream about. It's something. And none of the major non-singularity cosmological models posit a state of nothing either. It's only the theists who assert that there ever was nothing, whatever that would even mean. And that, in a way, would be my whole point. I don't have to know. You do. You're the one who says you know, not me. The R in surge stands for the radiation afterglow. That's the remnant heat discovered by Penzias and Wilson in 1965, which is literally the smoking gun to the Big Bang. There's heat, remnant heat from the Big Bang still out there, which shows that the universe had a beginning. The Big Bang is the start of our particular instantiation of space-time not the cosmos. The G in surge stands for the great galaxy seeds, which were very fine temperature variations in that radiation afterglow that allowed the galaxies to form in the early universe. Again, the Big Bang is the start of our particular instantiation of space-time, not the cosmos. And the E stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity, which shows that time, space, and matter are co-relative, that they came into existence together, that space-time and matter literally had a beginning. No, no, no. Einstein's theory of general relativity says that space and time are co-relative, not that matter is co-relative, and it certainly says nothing about matter having a beginning. This is bordering on dangerous misinformation. Einstein knew this in 1916, then observational evidence began in 1919 when Eddington did his test on the, on the uh, eclipse. This experiment also had nothing to do with matter being relative or having a beginning. It demonstrated that light rays could be bent by gravitational force. And then Hubble discovered the expanding universe in 1929. The expanding universe also says nothing about matter having a beginning. And then on to the radiation afterglow. He's referring to cosmic microwave background radiation, which supports Big Bang cosmology and a beginning of our instantiation of space-time but not the beginning of the cosmos, matter, or energy. The evidence points to the fact that the universe is not the uncaused first cause. None of the lines of scientific evidence that Frank listed point to the cosmos not being an uncaused first cause, or our brute fact. This is a man confidently misrepresenting science to an audience he hopes doesn't know better. And rewinding back, that means we are left with Carter's question unanswered. Why is God an acceptable brute fact? but matter and energy not an acceptable brute fact. So there must be something beyond the universe that is, and that thing that's beyond the universe must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. This is conjecture. The brute fact of our material existence may well be material, may well be in some version of space and time. Sorry, Frank. And if you're timeless, do you have a beginning? No. No, so that God is not, he didn't have a beginning. He's the uncaused first cause. As mentioned earlier, if this notion of timeless is coherent for God, then it's equally coherent for energy and negates any thermodynamic concerns. I believe you're drawing a false dichotomy. Correct, Carter. Because we do not know that the original cause was God. There is no reason to say that an intelligent designer was the first cause, the uncaused first cause that caused everything else. I do not have the training or expertise to refute search science, and in fact, I accept your conclusion that the Big Bang had a beginning and space, time, and matter came into existence from a point of origin. You shouldn't accept Frank's claims on this. It's just our particular instantiation of space-time. 
not matter. But then why is there a theology? Why do we worship God? He could easily be called another. Excellent point. You don't have to worship God. In fact, Aristotle never worshiped God. In fact, the Greeks never got their theology and philosophy together. They knew that there had to be an unmoved mover, but they never put the two together and worshiped the unmoved mover. So you don't have to worship the unmoved mover. You don't have to. You can do whatever you want. That's why you have free will. Those are separate questions. Free will, as is relevant in these God discussions, is in the libertarian free will versus determinism sense. That is, if one could relive any given fraction of a second, under identical inputs and conditions, could that person make a different choice? A determinist like myself would say that a person cannot, and therefore, we do not have free will. That's entirely different than if a person can do whatever they want. With or without free will, you can do what you want. In fact, one might argue that all of our decisions factor in our long-term and short-term priorities, and so, the person who eats ice cream now for pleasure, and the person who passes it up for health reasons, are both doing whatever they want, even if one option is more fun. God loves you enough to give you free will. You can love him or reject him, that's up to you. It's not up to me, because until I've received sufficient evidence to believe that he exists, I cannot make an informed decision about loving or rejecting, or something in between. According to the Bible, the demons and angels all have definitive proof of God's existence, and yet some love and some reject. So this revelation is not a free will issue. For some reason, God is hiding from me and millions of others, preventing us from making the choice Frank suggests. On that point, you do have the free will to accept or reject God, but the obvious conclusion is that the rejection of God will lead to eternal damnation and hell. So in reality, we do not really have the choice to accept or not to accept God, we must ultimately accept God, assuming we choose to avoid perdition. As Carter points out, choosing to love God is a choice similar to agreeing to pay protection money to the mob. Power troops, Dina. Oh, be a shame if someone was to set fire to them. Yeah. <laughs> set fire to them? Fires happen, Colonel. Things burn. Worse yet, Carter, if the Judgment Day is real, then ultimately every human will be given definitive proof that God is real. But at a point that is arbitrarily too late for us to use that knowledge to make an informed decision. There's only two possibilities if God exists. In eternity, you're going to be with him or you're not going to be with him. Right? That's logically the only two options. If you want to be with him, you will seek him out and be with him. What about those who seek God and can't find him? or seek him and find the wrong God, thinking it's the real one. It sounds like you think every genuine seeker lands in heaven regardless of their earthly theology. The Bible doesn't agree. If you don't want to be with him, God will not force you into his presence against your will. In fact, let me make the objection stronger than what you're making it. You're very polite, but I debated an atheist who was a little bit more direct, and, and let me uh, tell you, this man was, a, he's a good man, I like him, his name is Eddie Tabash, he's an attorney from Beverly Hills. We debated at University of Michigan a number of months ago. Sadly, this debate doesn't seem to have been recorded or posted online, so we can't double check Frank's account of it. And he looked at me during the Q&A and he said, Frank, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived an awful life. Somebody presented her with the gospel and she rejected it. Is she in hell right now? Frank has some nuance about exactly when the Judgment Day is, 
when exactly that happens and what constitutes now, but fundamentally, yes, Eddie's Holocaust-surviving mother will spend eternity in hell, a fate no different than her torturers. I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is. I don't know if she made a profession of faith in her last moments, but if she didn't, then God will not force her into his presence against her will. God is too loving for that. And I asked the audience this question. In fact, I'll ask you as an audience this question. Ladies, is there anybody in here who's ever had a man pursue you and you did not want that man to pursue you? You did not want to date him. Anyone in here? Of course. In fact, some of you are going, yeah, he's sitting right next to me right now. He won't leave me alone. This will be the fundamental flaw in Frank's analogy. The women have definitive proof that their harassers exist. I said, okay, ladies, suppose this man continues to pursue you and continues to pursue you. And you say, look, I only like you as a friend. Ladies, why don't you just take the knife, stick it in, and turn it? Because every man in here has heard this. I like you, but only as a friend. Is this still a God analogy, Frank? Are we wounding God with our rejection? Can we hurt God's feelings? Do we need to worry about an incel god taking out his frustration on the rest of the population? Well, suppose he continues to pursue you, continues to pursue you. And he gets to the point where he says, look, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Can he do that? No, he can't do that. Love, by definition, must be freely given. So if he truly did love you, what would he do? He would leave you alone. But... He would be entirely unjustified in expecting someone to love him who doesn't first know he exists. He needs to demonstrate himself before rejection is possible. That's exactly what God does. He keeps sending us cards, letters, and flowers while we're here. He's not. If God exists, he's leaving unmarked flowers for us in the middle of existing beds of flowers and hiding unsigned cards for us in the card aisle at the pharmacy. If God is making an effort, he couldn't be doing a worse job. And if we keep rejecting him, keep rejecting him, he gives us up to our own desires. And that ultimately what hell is ultimately what hell is. Hell is separation from God. So you're free in hell. You can continue to reject God in hell, but you're confined to hell. In fact, hell is a quarantine of evil. You're free to continue to reject God in hell, but you're not free to change your mind and accept God in hell after you have sufficient evidence with which to make your decision. You're only free when it's unclear. You're rewarded or punished for following a hunch. That's what it is. And heaven, of course, is being in the very presence of God. God loves you too much to force you into his presence against your will. Except on Judgment Day. I'll be there against my will, and I love you too much to force you to watch my next video against your will. But if you love me, and believe that I exist, you'll tap on the thumbnail on screen now, or forever be away from my presence. See you over there. Thanks, Carter. Later.